Lights, camera, action. Hello and welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron and it is just me and I can't blame anyone else for that other than myself. Sean was all set to record the podcast with me earlier to be completely transparent. Um, I felt horrific out of nowhere. I think I've cancelled two pods in the years and years that we have been doing them. And this was one of those occasions I had to uh, abandon ship, but it's now 2.32am. I'd like to say I was up wrapped with guilt about the fact that there wasn't going to be a pod to uh, be supplied with, but I thought I've got the notes here. If people want to listen to just a bit of facts and trivia, then they can get that from me. If not, switch off and uh, I'll, I'll update the uh, score on Twitter or something like that, just for the people that didn't fancy tuning in. So again, no one's fault but my own. I don't want to uh, lay the blame at anyone else's feet. I do that when it is other people's fault, so uh, I won't do that now. The matchup that I'll be discussing this week is uh, 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade versus 2019's 1917. Uh, so I do have a scorecard from Sean though as well. So it's not just me giving out who was uh, one I lost here. I haven't taken that into my own hands. Um, Sean won't be here next week. Uh, he's away on official work business. And I do have that verified this time. It's not like his uh, work drinks. But me and Keenan will be there. It's wild card week one. And I'll reveal those uh, matchups shortly. So if we start with Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, I won't... Uh, Dilly Dally too long here, just give you the facts and hopefully be as interesting as uh, possible. So in 1938, after his father, Professor Henry Jones Sr. goes missing while pursuing the Holy Grail, Professor Indiana Jones Jr. finds himself up against Adolf Hitler's Nazis again to stop them from obtaining its powers. Critics' reviews to rattle through these. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade closed the decade in style. One of the greatest finishes to any series in the history of cinema. Obviously, we know that wasn't quite the case, and this is the point I got to earlier before I had to call it a halt with Sean. Uh, take a good look at this movie, in fact. Go back four or five times and take four or five good looks. In this imperfect world, you're not likely to see many man-made objects come this close to perfection. So quite the praise there. Not surprisingly, Ford has most of the action here, but Connery, in what is often a test of a true actor, shows how much you can do with an essentially passive part. This is reportedly the last time producer-writer George Lucas and director Steven Spielberg will treat movie fans to an Indiana Jones adventure, and it's pretty obvious they were determined to send Indy riding off into the sunset in style. So uh, we know that doesn't happen. I think they're filming like Indiana Jones 6 now. Uh, Jack probably would have been a better person to give some context there. But yeah, we know this isn't the end, but at the time it was meant to be. 
before those uh, dollar signs hit everyone's eyes. Um, to give some kind of background here, the second Indiana Jones film really didn't go down as well as they hoped. So they brought in Sean Connery here, hoping not to knock Harrison Ford to the side, which obviously they don't do, but essentially just to show that they were revitalising things. They thought it gave them an outlet to bring more humour into it, which they definitely do compared to the second film. And just something to take the weight off his shoulders, something to uh, spice things up a bit and bring a bit more star power into things. So obviously that worked. This is probably the consensus. Second best uh, Indiana Jones film. This uh, argument for it being the first is certainly my favourite. Um, yeah, that's why they did it. People are trying to kill us. I know, Dad! Oh, it's a experience for me. It happens to me all the time. So, trivia then. Uh, most of the uniforms worn by the Nazis in the Berlin book burning scene are authentic World War II uniforms and not replicas. A cache of old uniforms was found in Germany and obtained by costume designer Anthony Powell to be used in this movie. So, uh, obviously they couldn't quite get the real Hitler for their scenes. Um, or we would have had a controversial Rex Ryan, I think. Um, but they did have real Nazi uniforms to uh, bring some realism there. 2,000 rats were bred for the production, if you wondered about those. Um, breeding them especially was necessary, as uh, ordinary rats would have been riddled with disease. So uh, dedication to realism there. Uh, this is Steven Spielberg's favourite of the Indiana Jones film franchise. And I found out today that apparently Hook is the film he hates the most of any film he's been involved in. Which I quite liked when I was younger, so uh, it's a bit of a shame. Uh, due to his commitment to this movie, Steven Spielberg had to drop out of directing Big and Rain Man, so uh, two hits there he could have been involved in. Uh, when George Lucas met with Spielberg to discuss a third Indiana Jones movie, he wanted to have it set in a haunted mansion. Spielberg had just finished Poltergeist and decided he wanted to do something different. Lucas then came up with the idea of the Holy Grail, and Spielberg added the idea of father and son substory. Uh, Alison Doody was only 21 during filming, despite her character being around age 29 in the script. Harrison Ford was more than twice her age, turning 46 during production. Um, early ideas were to end this movie with an elaborate escape from the temple and valley. However, Steven Spielberg later reconsidered when he realised the movie had already reached its emotional climax in the previous scene where Henry saves Indiana and the two men finally find what they're looking for. So yeah, it would have been a bit strange, I think, to finally have that all come to a halt and then have something like a Crash Bandicoot uh, coming through there. Uh, originally, Elsa was going to be the one who shoots Henry Jones Sr. and drink from the wrong grail, but they changed that during filming. And the body count, which I would have got uh, Sean to guess, is uh, 50 for the entire film. So I also took down a couple of thoughts while watching it before I go on to 1917. So uh, the whistling for the horse in particular is uh, top notch, which and that's the kind of thing that only seems to work in films. Like uh, calling for a taxi in New York if you're in a film, or playing like GTA or something like that. But the efficiency of which uh, the horses arrive every time they whistle was uh, spectacular. Um, if a lot of these characters weren't 
in the uh, archaeology business. They could have been boxers. I mean, the amount of one-punch KOs you get in this is insane. Every single punch landed knocks the other person out. So they probably would have been had that been more effective than the guns and uh, everything else they use. Um, I thought the the effects during the plane scenes were a bit ropey. Obviously, the budget didn't stretch that far. They were very obviously green screened. And then finally, the thing that's kind of been sat with me all day is um, the first kind of trap in terms of trying to get the uh, Holy Grail. First guy you see whose head comes off and rolls back through. Nobody bats an eyelid at that. Nobody is shocked. Nobody is horrified. It's just like it's just part of the business and they just kind of uh, carry on as normal. And even with that, I know... Uh, Indy's dad has uh, kind of his list of ways to get around this and how to get things sorted. Simply ducking out of the way of something that's going to chop your head off doesn't seem the most complex puzzle to solve, but I uh, credit the reflexes there. So uh, there you go. Uh, whichever one of these goes through to the next round, obviously there'll be a bit more to uh, get into. I just didn't want there to be any film with uh, no coverage at all. On to 1917 then, so the synopsis. Uh, April 6th, 1917. As a regiment assembles to wage war deep in enemy territory, two soldiers are assigned to race against time and deliver a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking straight into a deadly trap. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasia Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Lacust. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. Critics reviews. Is it Mendez or Mendy? I'll say Mendez because I'm not sure. Um, Mendez creates one of the best films released in 2019. Forget gushing quotes and star ratings. Probably the most effective way to advertise this movie is to strap heart rate monitors onto viewers and put the results on the poster, like horror movie trailers where they used to just put everything in night vision mode and zoom in on people screaming in the cinema, which would be a nightmare. <laughs> um, the filmmakers have taken a simple premise and gone with a less is more tactic. This allows for more focus on a beautifully shot film and highlights the actors who give their all emotionally and physically. 1917 can safely be added to the list of movies that have expanded and enhanced our understanding of how truly brutal war can be. And finally, when the soldiers struggle through near darkness in a collapsing tunnel, we suffocate with them. When a plane plunges from the sky towards them, it's an almighty effort not to leap from your seat. Like the old 3D adverts, which we've spoken about on here before. He was... He was a good man. Always telling funny stories. He saved my life. Uh, there isn't too much trivia for this one, so I'll run you through it. Uh... So Sam Mendes and Lee Smith stated that despite the apparently continuous shot, which I know the that's the main kind of thing this film's known for, uh, broken only by one interval of unconsciousness, there are actually dozens of invisible edits, as you can imagine, concealed by transitions through either darkness or uh, moves behind objects to uh, kind of reset things and so on. Uh, According to Mendes, the shortest unbroken shot was 39 seconds long, while the longest was eight and a half minutes long. So still very impressive. And it does really work well here. 
uh, over 5,200 feet of trenches were dug for this film, or just uh, just under one mile. The plot involving the two men delivering a message is actually very accurate. So uh, soldiers were hired as runners to deliver messages on upcoming attacks, but due to the dangers and walking through mud, on average, by the time the message was delivered, it was already too late, which almost happens in this film and does to some extent. Um, Tom Holland was in talks for the role of Lance Corporal Blake, but he turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. This came out just after the first solo Spider-Man film he did, so I can imagine why he uh, prioritised the one. I imagine he got a lot more cash for that. Uh, rats are seen feeding on a corpse with a dead soldier. Rats were an infamous problem in the war as they feasted on bodies of the dead and reportedly grew as big as cats. Sam Mendes persuaded many of his stars in the supporting cast to appear in small roles on the condition that they would not be asked to promote the film when it was released, which would explain maybe where you get some of these guys like Benedict Cumberbatch stepping in just for a little role, which they do absolutely smash all of them. Uh, an extra pointed out that when they were filming uh, the final scene with the uh, shot at the tree, behind the camera there's about 100 extras laughing, apparently, this tree, no one knew what it was going to be used for. And this was the tree that basically everyone pissed up against uh, because the toilets were so far away. And then obviously it ends up with uh, your main actor sitting underneath it. Um, I don't know how this one works. It's one I'm a bit sceptical of. Um, so they say Blake's face gets paler and paler as he bleeds to death. According to Sam Mendes and Sir Roger Deakins, apparently no post-production work was done to achieve this effect and Dean Charles Chapman achieved it entirely on his own. So I don't know what superpowers he's got, but uh, impressive. And uh, despite being such a graphic war film, only four soldiers are shown to be killed in combat. The German pilot, Lance Corporal Blake, the German sentry by the bridge, and the German soldier that gets strangled. Uh, there are many soldiers behind uh, Schofield in the final charge who are seen falling, but uh, obviously you have no confirmation that they uh, didn't make it. I do remember the scene in the cinema where uh, Blake dies was horrific, and obviously it's supposed to be, but just the way it's done, where he's over by the water fountain, you turn around and see that happen. Just completely unexpected. And it's one of those moments that I've explained before where somehow it seems quieter than silence, where people are, you've just kind of, you've warmed to these two characters. You literally, I think that's part of the effect where it's continuous and you're behind them. You really do feel like you're with them the whole way. You've grown to, to love the pair of them and yeah, that happens, brutal. Um, so the thoughts I took down while watching, um, pick a man, bring your kit is essentially what uh, Blake is told before they go out on this mission. If I was Schofield, I would be livid too, which he points out earlier, saying, why'd you have to pick me? Obviously, he doesn't know what he's letting himself in for, but you've got to assume it was never going to be anything good. But then whoever he picks was going to be livid there as well. Um, the only critique I had of the whole film, when the plane's hurtling towards them and they run forward to get out of the way of it, I know in the moment you don't know what you'd do, but yeah, it seems a lot easier to just dash to the side. And uh, one of the quotes that stuck with me was when they're leaving on the truck after uh, Blake's just been killed and the one soldier says, three years fighting over this, and then they just points out to just 
empty fields. And it really did uh, kind of put things into perspective there. Um, my favourite shot is basically, well, you can pick out anything, but the one that's kind of follows from behind with the uh, firelit ruins about three quarters of the way through the film are just incredible. The way they've done that, it's just so nice to look at, um, especially on the big screen. And quotes, which I know won it for Sean, I believe, was uh, fuck off Lance Corporal. Short and sweet there, and uh, really made the most of his time on screen there, old uh, Cumberbatch. But I don't have down all of the votes that I had from Sean, because I'm conscious that if I leave this now, then I may lose the recording. But I can tell you that it was 8-2 in finality to uh, 1917. So uh, 1917 goes through to the next round and faces Apocalypto. Um, obviously, it was only me and Sean scoring, so there were uh, four categories tied there. But it took, for us both preferring 1917, rewatchability went to 1917. Uh, the difficulty of adventure owner went to 1917. Uh, let me just confirm the others. Um, Quote was a tie. MVP we both gave to 1917. Side character went to Indiana Jones. Soundtrack went to Indiana Jones for me. Visual appeal both went to 1917 for the two of us. Uh, originality. Um, the tie for best ending. So we both enjoyed both films. I, I don't have a bad word to say. I didn't not enjoy... Uh, Indiana Jones at all, not for, not for one second. I enjoyed both films this week, but 1917 for me is just something special. So uh, I'm glad Sean felt the same way. And that goes through to the next round. Uh, I can confirm now that we'll be getting into the wild cards next week. So next week we'll be starting with uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is uh, my pick against uh, Gold, which is uh, Keenan's pick if anyone kind of watches along with the podcast and wants to get those in. And then the week after, we will be doing uh, Small Soldiers, a film that me and Keenan both love when we were younger. Sean is, has a, yet to see it up against Cool Runnings. So uh, it'll be a very nostalgic week that week. I won't go into the points to consider just because it's a lot more fun discussing it with someone else. I can assure you next week I'll be back with Keenan um, chasing that James Pantry sponsorship and talking about the films. And then we'll have Sean back with us the week after. Um, we have confirmed the films for the next bracket, which once we get closer to the end of this one, we'll be able to confirm. But it's definitely one to be excited for, and it's going to be our biggest bracket yet. So uh, plenty to stick around for. Hopefully we'll get some more interviews down soon. I'm sorry again that it's only me this week. Um, not ideal, I know, for anyone. Um, thank you if you've listened this far. And... Uh, yeah, we'll be back. Goodbye.